Welcome back to our third and final chapter of Footprints in Delirium, exploring the art jallow. The last nine weeks have proven to be quite a heady ride, as we've delved into some of the strange, mysterious shadows of one of Italy's most sublime genres of 60s and 70s cinema. For our curtain call, we will take a look at five of the best before we move on to Pastures New. So join with me, Kat Ellinger, and my co-host Sam Deegan, as we take a look at 1974's The Perfume of the Lady in Black and Spasmo, 1975's Autopsy and Footprints on the Moon, and perhaps the most beautiful art jallo of them all, 1976's The House with Laughing Windows. So welcome back to our third and final part of Exploring Art Jallo. I'm really excited today because we're exploring some of my favourites. Me too. I love all of these so much. As much as I've loved all the other ones, like three of these are like my absolute favourite sort of Italian films anyway. Mine too. Which three of yours? Perfume of the Lady in Black, House with the Laughing Windows and Spasmo. Whereas my three are Autopsy, Footprints on the Moon, and House with the Laughing Windows. Though I love the other two as well. Oh, I love the other two as well, but I'm just extreme. Especially Spasmo. I should do the Spasmo. I know. I can't wait. Starting off with the perfume of the Lady in Black, which to me is just, it's one of those Italian films. A lot of people say it's not a giallo, but it's its because it's total mystery. It's like a total mystery film, but it's got all those elements in an Italian film that I love. So it's got a sort of a gothic theme. It's, it's got very implied, gothic. It's got implied supernatural. It's got the most fucking amazing score ever. Oh, it's so good. I actually own the score on vinyl. It's, it's just Nicola really, Piovani, really be- right? Yeah. It's yes, it's really beautiful. It's one of my favourite scores. So it's got that. It's got it is a giallo in some respects, so it's got the murder. It's very atmospheric. But if you if I had to sum it up, I'd say it was a cross between Rosemary's Baby and Repulsion with yeah, loads of I, gothic I think I would agree with ladled that. onto it. So it's got the occult themes in it as well, which I absolutely adore. It's got everything. And that sort of one of the things we were talking about last episode, that idea of the unreliable narrator, you Mimsy Farmer is someone who took she stars in this film, if you've never seen it, um, is somebody who took a while to grow on me when I first started watching Italian horror. No, and I totally get that. I've I felt the same. She's very she gives off this really 
strange kind of cold, hard to read vibe, but I've come to love her so much because other than maybe Florinda Balkin, I think she does the best unreliable female narrator where she just seems so fundamentally unstable that you don't really know what to believe. She's absolutely brilliant in this. She's in autopsy as well, so we'll yes, be talking and, about her uh, more. Four Flies. Yeah, which is that was sort of her first attack. She was married to an Italian scriptwriter. So she started she was American. She started off in sort of American TV, but Four Flies on Grey Velvet was her breakthrough into Italian film. And she and didn't I didn't I didn't like that the first couple times I saw it when I was a teenager, but it's grown on me so much, I think because of her performance. Yeah, she's an she is a really interesting character actress. She's you know, I think she doesn't have that sort of glamour aspect. I mean, she's she's beautiful, but she's like, like you said, she's quite cold and she's got a really strange aura, like in everything. And, um, yeah, and unlike a lot of Italian actresses in general, not just genre actresses, they never really put her in anything, like, she's never all that feminine, like... No. Here she wears a bathrobe for half the movie. Like it seems like she's never wearing makeup. Like her hair's very sort of nondescript, but it and works she's, so she's well. She's like an industrial scientist, and then in autopsy, she's like a sort of mm-hmm. um, a scientist sort of character, which really fits in with her sort of cold vibe. But she's also extremely feminine, not in the way that she looks so much, but in the way that she's very delicate and fragile. Very fragile. And a lot like of she them... she does it even better, I think, than Rosemary's baby. It's just more believable somehow. Yeah, I mean it's and it's also the other thing that I love about this, so before we start talking about the plot, is everybody else in this film, apart from Mimsy Farmer, is suspicious. Or oh my sinister. god, everyone. And it's it's so it's got this really stifling atmosphere all the way through that you just don't know who to trust because everybody seems to have an agenda or be up to something which in a weird way i know we already have talked or at least mentioned two polanski films it reminded me of the tenant in the sense that it's like everybody who's sort of around her apartment or who comes into contact with her they all seem to just have it in for her in a weird way yeah, there's just something, and and the way it's filmed as well, and the way people's faces are put into shot, it's not that anyth- anybody says anything or anything's said, it's just this hideous atmosphere for, from the get-go. You, you, so you meet her, she's Sylvia Hasherman, and she's got her boyfriend, Roberto. I don't know if you're supposed to hate him, but every no, once he's in a horrible. while... Yeah, he's okay, really, so it's not really, just me. Yeah, from the get-go, even he is just something about him. He's like a slug. He's sort of dismissive and a bit, you know, you just think he's, he's controlling up to in a weird way. And I, I feel like maybe it maybe it struck a little bit of a too personal chord with with me in particular, but but it, it's like he, he just acts like he's available, but wants her to... It's sort of the same as autopsy, actually, because it's like he wants to control her and he wants her to do all these things and and treats the fact that she's a scientist like 
I don't know. Like, it's a yeah, hobby. he's, like, really dismissive, and he sets up. Mind if I don't come up tonight? We're going to have to get a real early start tomorrow. But you know I'm not coming. I can't come, I told you. Oh, for Christ's sake, Sylvia. We've known each other nearly four months, and every Sunday it's the same story. All you can think about is that goddamn laboratory. It's the third time that Andy has asked us to play tennis at his house. You don't want to offend him, do you? Sometimes I really don't understand you. It's as if you were trying to exclude me from your life as much as possible. That's not true. It's just that I absolutely must check that material that's going off to Berlin tomorrow morning. The hell with the material. It's like you had an obsession about winning the Nobel Prize. I wish you wouldn't get so upset over something so unimportant. All right. Do as you please. One of these weeks I'll call you. Good night. So, early on, you meet these two, you think this boyfriend isn't very nice. She's obviously a lot more into him or a lot more reliant on him and sort of goes along with what he yeah. says, but he's all Well, on... she wants to keep him. Yeah, and he sort of, you know, arranges a dinner party with these sinister people, but he's, you know, she's... So, one of the early scenes is she's stressing to get ready and the, and the neighbour, who's also really sinister, comes round to borrow some Who tea. Who I love. He's like, yeah, but he's really sinister... He comes round and she's panicking that she won't be ready in time. So you, it's set up from almost like the first shots that the boyfriend's an asshole. Um, then when she wants him to do anything or she wants any support, he's busy or he's off somewhere because he's a geologist yeah. and sort of travels here, there, and everywhere. So I, I didn't like him from from the get go. He's not, he's not a nice person. But nobody in this film is nice. No. I mean, no. sometimes the neighbor is nice to her. Yeah, but in a creepy, pervert way. Yeah, and there's there's this weird scene, like you were saying, when he first comes into her apartment, you think he brings up the fact that he's a widower, and it seems like he's trying to hit on her. But then later in the film, when she's made their dynamic a little more clear, and she she sort of compares him to her father, he sort of says that, like she could be his daughter but in a way where you're just like uh-uh no <laughs> yeah. please stop so we get so early on we we find they go to this dinner party and there are which these is the weirdest dinner party ever weirdest most sinister so this is where it becomes a bit rosemary's baby in every corner of africa be it jungle savannah village river or even in the tallest skyscrapers of our newest cities, a certain fear rides the hot winds. A fear which has many names, black magic, witchcraft, superstition, rites, mysterious deaths, human sacrifices. Not only in Africa, Andy. Even in Europe. So they go to this really strange dinner party and the the people there, so it's a lot of African people and they're talking about tribal witchcraft and black magic and her and you get the idea that Mimsy, that Sylvia's not comfortable with this, but the but the boyfriend, Roberto, he's really loving it. He almost takes like a sadistic sort of glee out of her being uncomfortable. He does. 
It's really, it's like, I wouldn't have wanted to be at that dinner party. No, but I think, and that's kind of what I was trying to explain earlier, which I think I did poorly, is that it's like he tries to force her into these social situations because it's like, oh, you work all the time, you're lonely, you need more friends. But it definitely seems like he wants her to be in situations where she's uncomfortable. Yeah. So they get home from this party and he just dumps her off at her apartment after they have a row. And she, the next thing we know, she's woke up and it's the next day, but she slept all day. A housekeeper um, wakes her up and she's been yeah, asleep like 4 all day. PM. Yeah. Yeah. Which was like me today after recording last night. <laughs> <laughs> but thankfully I hadn't been to any weird witchcraft based parties. So, you know, in the book. At least not that you're admitting. <laughs> No, I might have, but I'm not going to admit that on here. So, <laughs> so, um, so the boyfriend's not around, and and then this is when her Sylvia's psyche starts to unravel. She starts to see things. She starts to have weird flashbacks about her mother, who was supposedly committed suicide, and the way that it's rendered is just marvelous. It's very like it's very Mario Bava, kill baby kill on parts. It is. Like she comes into her apartment and her dead mother is sat in a wicker chair. It's so creepy. And just sat there putting on this perfume. She's wearing like a black and black polka dot dress and smiling and it's like really creepy and the boyfriend's like comes in afterwards. There's nothing there, you're just being stupid and totally dismisses her. Um, she then goes to play tennis with his creepy dinner party friends because he forces her to again, and she's not enjoying it. But they, he makes her go and play around with this black guy, and it's like your turn. We're going for a drink, and they just leave the, her there, and she obviously just isn't into it. And she picks up the racket, and there's a nail in it, so it cuts her hand. And you think, hmm, that we can see where this is going. <laughs> yeah, but as so he starts sucking the wound on her on her hand. This other guy, she, she looks so creeped it's out. Like I would be if someone did that to me. It's just hideous. Yes, He's but really you would intense. at least have the sense to say, like, please do not put my hand in your mouth. No, but she gets a bit <laughs> distracted because in the distance she sees this little blonde-haired girl who's playing. Um. This Who's creep so creepy? Yeah, played by Lara Wendell, who we mentioned earlier from Rings of Darkness, yes. looking about six years old. In fact, she probably was about six years old, and it's really hard. I mean, I was saying about Anne Hayward, but it's just, it's just so. When you think the perfume of the Lady in the Black was seventy-four, so just three, <laughs> three or four years later. She was doing um, Rings of Darkness, and she also did that really dodgy Maladolicenja, which is a, oh, a very yes. notorious Italian film that was actually banned because it had a 12-year-old Lara Wendell in it and, and simulated sex. It was actually prosecuted as um, child pornography. So it's quite shocking, actually, to see her here, actually, as a child. And then she turned up in Tenebrae later on. Yes. As a teenager, but which I um, think is where most people will recognize her from. Yeah, but she looks, she just looks so young here. I, mean, I don't know how old she would have been, but she, wow, she's six. She was, she would have been nine. She looks younger. She looks, she looks five or six. Yeah. So 
it's just it's just weird and disturbing to think that just a few years later she'd be bitch slapping with Anne Hayward. Naked. Naked. Full bush. It's just like it's so wrong. Well, it it's almost so like, are you old enough to have that full bush? Is any, that real? <laughs> and anyone who says it was another era, it's just like, no, what were they thinking? It's just like... <laughs> no, so moving on, she so that, that sort of sets it up and you start to think, is Sylvia going a bit crazy? Is that a ghost? Who are these creepy people that are, you know, really intense and what's her boyfriend's deal and why is he so horrible yeah and so the rest of the film sort of follows that it it explores her childhood trauma the fact that her father was absent and her mother was fucking some guy who was also trying to rape her when she was a child and she has these disturbing flashbacks that happen as if they're actually happening at the time so yeah it's ter- she- it's really effective and sort of terrifying um, one little touch I love. Her neighbour has a cat called Chopin. <laughs> yes, although I hate that cat. <laughs> yeah, it ends up. It ends up. Um, you know, it doesn't have a nice end though. No, Chopin. Which I feel like this is sort of a running theme through a lot of Jalo films, where animals feature in a really weird way. And animals are all the way through this. Like her boyfriend Roberto collects butterflies. And Sylvia's got all these like stuffed animals and he's got all these stuffed animals and the neighbour, the creepy neighbour, he's got like all these hippo ornaments. It's yeah, like it's really all the weird. way through the film, like animals have got some sort of Well, and she goes into a taxidermy shop, doesn't she? Well Chopin or... well, what happens is she then starts getting these strange presents. Um her friend, this is taken straight out of Rosemary's baby upstairs is supposedly commit suicide or falls out of a window and yes. after that she starts to get these weird presents like she gets this vase that reminds her of her childhood turn up and then she gets like what looks like grave dirt in a in a package so it's like someone's trying to send her mad but then this little girl who's also called sylvia who's straight out of kill baby kill starts coming into her apartment and having conversations with her um which she Which, completely accepts. <laughs> it's like, you know. Yeah, at first she's like, kid, you need to go back to your parents. They probably miss you. And because I had seen Kill Baby Kill before I saw this film, I was like, oh, the kid's a ghost. Which is not the case at all. No, it's it's a nice little nod to Barva, though. It I is. think the director, Francesco Barilli, he, he does an amazing sense of gothic in this. Um, yeah, it's beautiful. The whole film is beautiful throughout. The colours and the lighting, there's a lot of barber in it in that respect. So we get the little girl who starts sort of making plans with grown-up Sylvia and telling her what to do. And the little girl brings dead Chopin round as a present. <laughs> Where do you get that box? I had it at home. Home? Where do you live? You know very well where I live. Via Cavalier d'Arpino. What? Via Cavalier d'Arpino. You heard. Number five. Look, I've brought you a present. (laughs) 
Why did you bring them here? Why? Because I've come to live with you. No. I'm sure I'll like it here. Besides, you know my favorite jam is Blackberry. I want you to be happy too, Sylvia. If you look under the bottom dress, you'll find the surprise I prepared for you. I feel like I've brought this up in past episodes, but I'm a little bit freaked out by children. So movies like this where children are horrible, it it doesn't help with that. <laughs> no, she's not very nice and she brings no, it around. There's all terrible. these little sort of between those two as well. Another little touch that I love is this Alice in Wonderland. Um, they keep bringing in uh, references from Alice in Wonderland. Um, Which is weird because of Mimsy Farmer's name. Her her real first name is Merle, which is horrible. But <laughs> I'm sure someone out there likes the name Merle, and no offense to you. But so Mimsy Far Mimsy is her nickname, and it comes from Jabberwocky. And I I'm kind of wondering if they had any like on set conversations about that in terms of the Alice in Wonderland themes that don't really take off till the second half of the film, but. You know, when the little girl comes up and it starts to yeah. really lose, it starts to really lose any sense grasp of reality. In the best way. In the best way. So she starts to suspect everyone. She starts to see this guy. She goes, she she decides that they'll get Chopin stuffed. And so she go, turns up at a taxidermist and she bumps into the guy that was fucking her mother. Um, who then yes. follows her to her old childhood home and tries to rape her, and she starts to go completely fucking insane. It's it's amazing. It's a really amazing film, just in yeah. every way. And then to top it off, there's a there's a cult <laughs> underneath it all. Just to, yes, I think I said in the first episode when we did Short Night of the Glass Dolls, I absolutely love cult references in yeah, in me too genre cinema. So just to have that in almost as an aside, because the main narrative is all about Mimsy Farmer's character and her unraveling mind and her childhood trauma and her feelings about her dead mother. And, you know, so that is almost like a sort of extra cherry on the cake when, when it sort of hits its last notes. And so just in case for whatever reason you're listening to this episode first we we mentioned previously that we are giving away a lot of spoilers so here it comes so, the, the little girl is sylvia who and, killed her mother yes and so she's having these sort of like it's like a post-traumatic stress disorder but in the most extreme way because she's being pushed by the cult there, it's not explicit, but they've done something. When she attended the dinner party and then when she cut her hand on the tennis racket and that guy sucked the blood out, there's obviously something has happened. Like The boyfriend goes away straight afterwards. He pretends he's busy and you see that he's actually with these cult members. And you get the feeling that they're behind it in some way but she's part way there anyway so it's probably why they picked her for a victim and my own personal theory is that the boyfriend was was just going out with her because he saw her as fragile and Which just saw is. that she'd be perfect to bring into this cult so because he's a real shit house i just don't <laughs> like him at all 
so you get you you sort of find out that actually you know she the she loved her father but her father deserted them and went off to the navy or whatever and she walked in on her mother having sex with this horrible guy who was obviously abusing her so her mother is planning some decorations for some party some celebration and so she is up on the balcony putting up an Italian flag and the little kid pushes her off, which is what I'd do. She's a no, bit of an I, asshole, that mother. I was going to say, the mother and... We've, we've discussed having an episode or a couple episodes in the future where we talk about films all about horrible mothers, but yeah. the mother had it coming. The mother did have it coming. So... When she actually realises this, she goes completely fucking insane and starts hacking people up and putting and together a real it... mad hatter dinner party, which I love. I, I know, just I love, love and, that. But I think that's when it becomes more of a full-blown giallo film is when she yeah. loses her shit and starts killing people. But I also have to wonder if uh, Happy Birthday to Me, which I really yes. love... If that was influenced by this film, because, because there's also very, that yeah, yeah insane party at the end with all dead people. It's very, yeah, she's got dead people sat at the dinner table and she's pouring them tea and she's singing these songs and, and quoting Alice in Wonderland. It is very happy birthday to me. I love that film as well. Me too. You you have to wonder, don't you, how many of these sort of American directors were watching Italian genre films? Not that... Perfume the Lady in Black was actually is actually that big a film. No, but I think it's gotten out of out of all the films that we've talked about. Well, maybe not all, but out of a lot of the films we've talked about in these Art Jello episodes, I think this is one that more people have seen because it's gotten attention in recent years and deservedly so. It's so beautiful. Raro put it out, didn't they? And hasn't it had a Blu-ray release recently? Yes, and. If you haven't picked up any of their titles, for whatever reason, they seem to have sales like every weekend. So and they you always should... put out things that I want. It's almost I know. like they read my mind. <laughs> I, like... That's how I feel. It's like everything <laughs> from these weird sort of Italian art house films to like the sort of crime thrillers and giallo films. And they they have so many amazing releases. So talking of amazing releases, another film that I absolutely fucking love and finally got upgraded to Blu-ray last year is... Finally. Finally, Umberto Lenzi's Spasmo from, from... 1974. <laughs> oh, God, it's so good. <laughs> Which, again, it's 1974 was the year I was born, so by default, every film, every genre film at least, made in that year is just amazing. It's just... <laughs> there are so many <laughs> That's great what ones. I think...
I love this film so much, but I think, and like some of the others that we've been talking about, so do other people. Um, because it's so... It's... Okay, so in in the previous episodes, we mentioned how certain Jalo fans definitely seem to know about the core directors like Dario Argeno and Sergio Martino, but I think out of the... The directors who made the most number of Jalo films, Umberto Lenzi still doesn't get the attention he no, deserves. No, he doesn't. And I said this re- very, very recently, actually. I had a conversation about this. I just think, you know, pe- when people think of Lenzi and they tend to think of his sort of later films like Nightmare Beach and Cannibal Ferox and Nightmare City, which I'm sorry, they're they're entertaining films. Yeah, you know, or, write them or off, even if you will. like... Even Eyeball or Seven Bloodstained Orchids, but... But as a, he made a fair amount of um, Jally, and he made some really good films. He made So Sweet, So Perverse, which I it's fucking so love. so good. He, you know, he, like you said, he did Seven Bloodstained Orchids, he did Knife of Ice, he did Which Spasma, I really love, that one. He did A Quiet Place to Kill, he did... Um, Paranoia. Paranoia. You know, and I think an also eyeball, part of the... which is I just love because it's insane. Well, I think part of the problem is not all of his films have legitimate releases, and they all have this sort of issue where it's like a translation issue. So if you look at the original titles for some of his films, the English titles make it really confusing, like Paranoia. Which and there is were a two film... paranoias as well. Well, so this is the problem. So it's like Paranoia, which is his 1970 film. The Italian title is Paranoia, but the English title is A Quiet Place to Kill. Whereas his 1969 film Orgasmo, for whatever reason, the English title is Paranoia. Yeah. So it's like you have all this confusion about like which film is which and where can you find them. And I, I don't know why like... Somebody like Arrow hasn't put out an amazing, and it I could be a rights saying, issue. Umberto Lenzi box yeah. set, please, please, I know. please. It would be. Because... I, f- I think he made eight or nine Jalo films. It would be even a two part box set. Like they're come on, all wonderful. They're they all. Are. I d- there's not an Umberto Lenzi Jalo that I do not like. They're all, but this Spasmo is the best. Um, along with So Sweet, So Perverse, is my favorite of his, and just I just. It's one of those films I couldn't even really explain why I liked it. It's just the atmosphere of it and the music and just the aura of it. I just and the fact that it makes no sense and the fact, but nothing makes any sense. None of the films we've been talking about actually make any sense, but it doesn't matter because it's just so glorious and it's got this amazing beach house that I've I've started the new theme of discussing Jallo and Italian film houses that I'd like to work. uh, Oh, that would be my holiday house because it's like just amazing. <laughs> and you know, the when score I'm not, and the score is just From beautiful. Morcone. So, <clears throat> so the story is it's so, <laughs> which is ridiculous. <laughs> the ridiculous story it stars Robert Hoffman is Christian. The setup is that somebody's stabbing mannequins in the woods and hanging them on nooses, and these mannequins are wearing lingerie. Um, so the that seems scene normal. is these this courting couple stumble upon this hanging mannequin. And actually, think it's a woman, but it's not. It's like a dummy. 
Um, so someone's doing that, but then then the then it opens up, and and so Robert Hoffman is Christian. He's on the beach. He's like having a day out, and he bumps into Susie Kendall, who's playing Barbara, who's lying there. And for whatever reason, they him uh, Robert Hoffman, Christian, and his girlfriend at the time, uh, they they seem to think that she's dead. Well, she seems dead. She's like passed out face down on the shore. Yeah, but she could be having a nap. It's the beach. People do lie down on the beach. But they rush up and go, and she sort of comes to, and they're like, oh, sorry, we thought you were dead. And then they all have a <laughs> laugh about it, and he offers her some whiskey. Um, And that's when you know this is going to be a bizarre film. Because <laughs> it's like they all go, oh, ho, 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 you thought I was dead. And it's just like, what the fuck? Who are you? What do you want? I'm sorry. I, I thought that... You look dead from up in the hill. What happened to you? It must have been the sun. I, I must have fainted. I don't remember. You feel better now? Yes, I feel much better. I'm sorry, my name's Barbara. I'm Xenia, and this is Christian. What you need is a double scotch. That'll pick you up. I'll get it. It wouldn't be wise to leave a couple of women alone. What made you think I was dead? We were talking about a dog. It was strangled. So, it was only the power of suggestion. <laughs> Perhaps. Where are you from? Well, I'm, uh... Christian! I can't find it! Excuse me. So he goes off to wherever he's got his J&B hidden, and she just goes off in a car. Barbara, Susie Kendall, she just, like, goes off. Um, but, like, Cinderella leaves a flask, which is a clue, and it's got the name of a yacht on it. So we don't find out how he tracks her down, but he does. He tracks down this this party on a boat and turns up and he, he reunites with her. So they go on a date. Um, It's got loads of great dialogue in it as well. Oh, really my God. The dialogue is dialogue. insane. So she goes on, he goes on a date and she invites him back to her hotel. <laughs> and she says to him... Because they're just about to have sex. I'm suspicious of men with beards. And this is my Robert favorite dialogue Hoffman in the whole film. He's <laughs> got a beard. So she sends him to the bathroom to have a shave. Bearing in mind he's got like a full fucking beard. And she's been on a date with him all night. And it's like, you know, it's not just like a little bit of beard. So he just complies. He goes into the bathroom starts hacking well he wants to get laid and the things that men will go through to get their leg over is amazing but when he's having this <laughs> shave in the most unsexy scene ever because um susie kendall you know she's okay in this but she's a bit prim and she's not really very she's, seductive she's annoying yeah i'm she's sorry getting, she's getting undressed like in the background and it's almost like they're an old married couple even though they've just <laughs> met <is. laughs> a shave and she's in this like not very sexy sort of underwear like in a dressing gown and it's like you know really bizarre and this dude just turns up in the bathroom with a <laughs> Robert Hoffman's just finished shaving and there's like a scaffold and he shoots this guy 
And so he's going to call his, he's, he sort of panics and he's not, he doesn't call the police. He's like, I'm going to call my brother. Um, oh. So, yeah. <laughs> which we're, <laughs> I know we're very excited to talk about the brother. I'm going to call my brother Fritz, who we don't know at this point is paid by the absolutely gorgeous and amazing Ivan Razumov. Who's, uh, I mean, I said earlier I would pass out if I saw Telly Savalas, but I would also pass out if I saw Ivan Rasmov. Oh, he's just, you know, and he's so fucking sinister in everything. So you... It's the cheekbones, I think. He, <laughs> he looks like he wants to kill you and then kill your entire family and then make it seem like it was your idea. He's got, I don't know what's going on with his hair in this film. I know he's had some fucking pretty awful hair. In a lot he of always Dom- has ridiculous hair. <laughs> in this one especially, he's just got this. I don't know if it's his hair, but it looks like a badly fitted wig. It's like like in all the colors of the dark, his <laughs> hair is out of control. <laughs> his hair in that is terrible. So yeah, we don't know that Fritz is Ivan at this point though, because then we'd know he was a bit of a rotter because he's never, <laughs> never. Like, as soon as he, as soon as he turns up, you just think, oh. You know. It's all so, over. <laughs> so he's like, oh no, I'm going to call my brother. And then they decide, like, they're not, he's not there. He rings his brother at the office, and some guy's like, oh, he's gone home. So they go on the run. Um, <laughs> and Susie Kendall. It makes Kendall, no sense. No, it doesn't. Like, Susie Kendall, um, she she says, oh, I know a place we can stay. I know this, um, this my friend, she's like an artist and she owns this house by the sea. So we'll just go there and we'll break in. So they go to this, like, absolutely beautiful house by the sea that I want to own. It's got all these, like, ornate bird cages in it and a massive window that looks out onto the ocean. They break Which in. Which always spells trouble. Yeah, always spells trouble, but he realises he left his medal. (laughs) (laughs) His medal that he's carrying around at the murder scene. So he has to go back and he goes back and the body's gone. So it's a bit of a like Lady Diabolique sort of thing going on. You think, hang on a minute, where's the body? The body. That man's body. It's gone, disappeared. It's not in the bathroom. But that's not possible, are you sure? Well, also the automatics disappeared. There's, it's just a blood stain. But that must mean that he's only wounded. You didn't kill him. He's alive. Or dead. Someone took the body away. You mean like an accomplice? I don't know. It's also absurd. Meaningless. And what's absurd is dangerous. Maybe, maybe he was after someone else and it was all a misunderstanding. Who else? Or maybe Alex sent him. That's why he was waiting outside. You mustn't get mixed up in this. Go. You listen to me. I'm already in it up to my neck. And if it hadn't happened in my room, I'd still have wanted to help you. But don't you realize, if he's only wounded, he'll try again. If he's dead and and he has an accomplice, then, then someone else could be, could be looking for you, someone else wanting to kill you. I can't leave you now. Please, Barbara. We have to hide. To gain time to think. It doesn't sort of get any weirder than that, I think. It's just nothing makes sense. So there's not even a body now, but they're still on the run. They're still on the run. No, it doesn't make any sense. And at that fucking house, the power goes out constantly for no apparent reason. 
Yeah, because it's creepy. You've got to get the creepy in. Um, <laughs> the Brazilian painter who just sort of goes away for weeks. Um, so there's, they go back to this house and this old man called Malcolm and his, I'm not sure what she is, his daughter, Clorinda, turn up. Um, and Malcolm's played by Guido Alberti and Clorinda's played by Monica Monet. They turn up and they're like, actually, we rent this house, but it's okay, but you you can stay. Um, Which is if insane. If I found two fucking people that had broken into my house, I wouldn't give them a bed for the night. No, and it's not even that they're like, okay, you're friends with the people who own the house, you can stay. They're like, oh, tell us your troubles, we'll help you solve this mystery. Yeah. <laughs> it's very Scooby-Doo. <laughs> but, but Malcolm's like like really they're like another one of those couples they're like they're like really really sort of sinister everyone um, in this movie is sinister <laughs> so they they're all sort of you know Malcolm sort of encouraging him to sort of sort himself out and giving him all this life advice and um, it's like and, it's like weird dad advice yeah and Susie Kendall's getting a bit stressed I love it on the second day that she's been with him so she's known him for two days she says to him in they have this round she storms off and she says I don't understand you anymore it's like you've known him for two fucking days <laughs> <laughs> did you even understand him <laughs> well it is to be fair it is Susie Kendall and out of all the Jalo actresses, to me, she's the most ditzy. It's like, yeah, and she's quite prim and quite like sensible and just I don't know what it is. She just, I don't know. She doesn't just seem. She doesn't seem to belong there. She's just no. I don't know. I feel like they were kind of going for an Eva Allen vibe, where she's very she's sort of supposed to look wide eyed and innocent, but maybe be up to no good. But like Susie Kendall is just not up to it. And no, just seems she... like she doesn't know what the fuck is going on. But it doesn't matter because Robert Hoffman's so intense that it just is. <laughs> so he goes off to find Fritz, his brother, who you then see as Ivan Razumov, and you just know he's an absolute shit and they're trying to set him up. <laughs> and we also find out that poor Christian's been in a mental asylum. And, you know, and... And the dad died in mysterious circumstances and they inherited a lot of money out of it. So you think, oh, what's going on here? But then there's all these sort of red herrings and twists and stuff where so this many. guy turns up that isn't dead and tries to kill Christian and so he kills him. And there's the woman, Clorinda, who's with Malcolm. He recognises her, um, but she says she's never met him before and then they have, like, they have this really weird sort of almost rapey sex scene where it's, he forces himself yeah, on her. It's horrible. It's it's like it's not even horrible because it's rapey. It's horrible because it doesn't make any sense. No, because they're just chatting and Susie Kendall stormed off and then he just decides, you know, well Susie Kendall made me shave my beard off. So now I have to go force out. myself I on God someone. I've fucking been waiting for two days for Christ's sake. I just <laughs> killed a man. <laughs> Like, I fucking shaved my beard so that I could have sex, and goddammit, I'm gonna have sex. Yeah, so he does. Tell me who you really are. Why do you want to help me? You're hurting me. Go. No. No. Stay. I need you. 
I don't care if you are like the others. Let go of me. Not this way, no. Just let me leave, Christian. Please don't. Not this way, please. Yes. I need you. I think I'm going mad. And so he, he sort of transpires, obviously, they're trying to set him up. Um, but that is when it goes, that is when it just goes so brilliant. And one of the reasons I love it. So when you find out that that Fritz is the is the mentor brother um, and and Christian is mental as well, but oh, he's, yeah, they're both insane. He's, he's not as, as nasty. So, like, you know, he just wants to get on with his life and meet girls and, you know, pour them whiskey and stuff. The normal so, stuff. The, re- <laughs> the way they introduce this, the whole family history is like absolute genius. It's so good. <laughs> so Ivan Razumov is sat in his study and he's watching this home video of when they were kids <laughs> or this like super eight camera footage of, and it starts video. off like so they've got the two little kids <laughs> and we are going to do some evil kids episodes and we're going to have to mention this on on these so the two little kids are like in a garden they're playing and the one kid is like really got this like really fucking evil look the he's like looking at the kids who's supposed to be rasimov as a child but they're like playing so horrible and evil he like glares into the camera and he just looks hideous and then there's this like other really strange scene where they're playing sort of they're playing with these toy guns that look remarkably real these kids and there's a bunch of boys and girls and then the ivan razumov kid grabs this girl around the throat and has her like held like a hostage (laughs) and all the other kids are sort of like trying to get him away and then it flicks to the dad's funeral because yeah everybody has those kind of home videos hanging around of course why would you not film your dad's funeral funeral. you you see malcolm was there as well (laughs) Uh, but uh, looking the same as he does like 40 years later (laughs) (laughs) and ivan's ripping the petals off this flower looking like really really like intense like he's gonna kill everyone is how he yeah, looks is is brilliant and then the father because the father was supposed to have committed suicide and then they've got christian in this like mental hospital having the clockwork orange treatment with like electrodes all over his head because <laughs> why would you have that and you know with these like millions of electro pointy like electrodes on his head and they're obviously giving him some shock treatment and then clorinda is the nurse and it's like ah so this and it's almost like you know we'll have this completely strange plot that doesn't make any sense 10 minutes before the film ends we need to like explain everything let's just do a video montage We'll show you who Malcolm was, who Clorinda was. We'll show you that Ivan Razumov is evil. <laughs> we'll show you that Christian was in the mental hospital. It's just so cheeky. It's but brilliant. It's amazing. And <laughs> it like it's unintentionally funny, but it, it kind of seems to know that it's ridiculous. Yeah, and that's part of the reason that I love it. Apart from the fact as well, it looks amazing and the score's amazing and it is really silly, but it's thoroughly, thoroughly entertaining. And the last Um. scene is the (laughs) best thing I've seen in a while. (laughs) Fucking Ivan Rasmop. So 
I don't know that we mentioned this, but he, so it seems like there's a, some sort of family business that he has taken over and which is why he's always in his office. So he's in this office by himself and then it sort of like flashes to him going into this other room with all these mannequins and it's like he <laughs> it's like <laughs> in his mind they're real women and he talks to them and he murders one <laughs> you're just like what the fuck <laughs> and they've all got like underwear on yes they are all wearing lingerie <laughs> <laughs> and then they like to really hammer it home like the last thing is he keeps hearing in his head, your brother's disease is hereditary. (laughs) (laughs) He's spasmo. (laughs) Your brother Christian's disease is hereditary. His disease is hereditary. 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 And that's it, basically. It's so good. It's glorious. It is very, you know... Come on, somebody somebody needs to do a box set of these films. Oh, I know it's already had a Blu-ray release, but no, somebody but needs someone... to put the rest of the lensy stuff out. And I would really especially love to see like I feel like we've we've written about this a fair amount on Diabolique, but in the last year or two, Arrow has come out with all these amazing Jalo releases, Jalo box sets with great special features and I would love to see some sort of like Lindsay documentary because he's gotten such little attention compared to Argeno or Fulci and it's so unfair. I mean you No, know, and he seems to get like he does get attention for his crime thrillers or his cannibal films, but not yeah, for Yeah, but those. these are better. Not for the Jarro. And which is uh, you know, he yeah. made so many. It's like but he's almost forgotten. It's so, stupid. Yes, so back to Mimsy Farmer again. This, I don't know, I, as I said at the beginning of the episode, Autopsy is one of my favorites, but it's sort of, it's not perfect. It has some issues, particularly in the second half, but unlike Spasmo, there's not a lot about it that's funny. Like, it's very grim. No, it's grim. disturbing. It's, it's really super disturbing. disturbing. It's even more disturbing than the perfume of the Lady in Black. It's... It just, it sort of makes your skin crawl in certain scenes. It's, in the it's, best way. In the best way, but it is really for, full on. The director, Armando Crispino, he didn't make that many genre films. But no. he also made The Dead or Alive, which was 1972, which is absolutely fucking insane. It's not as insane as Autopsy, but the both of the films have this like really strange strange dialogue and the dead or alive are about these sort of a, it that's like a jallo as well they're like about yeah. these etruscan ruins and this killer and these paintings and it's like got a lot of these sort of 
artifacts from the past and, and strange things in there and it's really unusual. Yeah, so, I think I don't I don't know if this is the case in the UK, but I think in the US it's most often known as the Etruscan kills again. Yeah, the Etruscan kills again. So it, it, that's a really strange film. It's not is I think that's got more comedy in it though just because of the the, the more city. unintentional comedy yeah unintentional <laughs> comedy because it's quite nasty it's quite violent but there's some of the dubbing in it is hilarious um there is weird dubbing in this actually though but because of some of the imagery is. is just so fucking nasty it sort of <laughs> yeah it like... sort of curbs the laughs in in a way because it's just so well even the opening you're like jesus christ where is this going well, the opening, so the opening scene is a series of suicides. Yeah, it's which like, is a, rather so we, we were just talking about a, a montage. This is a suicide montage. Hmm, a really nasty one. It's got wrist slitting, a guy putting a bag over his head. Um, there's a father who's killed his whole family, including the kids. Like, within two minutes, there's a dead kid. Just, like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, what can possibly happen next? Well, what happens next is they then go to the fucking morgue and there's this dead woman with the hugest tits I've ever seen. It's this ridiculous. This is in the first five minutes, sort of being wheeled into an autopsy. And the people in the morgue, so you've got the, the morgue attendants and this morgue is absolutely packed with dead bodies and the actors... With all respect to the actors, they've just got people that look really sort of grotesque or, you know, not particularly attractive people. And the way they've done the makeup on them is amazing. So they look no, the really makeup, grisly. The makeup through the whole film is great. And so that's within the first sort of five minutes you've got, you know, they're doing an autopsy and, and pulling out brains. Um, there's an inappropriate morgue attendant who keeps making jokes, but it doesn't help. <laughs> Which, in my experience, so I feel like I must have brought this up in a past episode, but I worked in a morgue for a while, and there is always at least one person who makes inappropriate jokes. Yeah, that would have been you, I would have thought, was it? Well, it wasn't just me, but <laughs> yes, it definitely... I, I definitely did a lot of inappropriate things with dead bodies, but... Oh. Not well, not in the way that that probably sounds. Yeah, not in the way that the guy does in this, because no. it's horrible. Doc, the chief wants you to take a look at this one. He just came in. Uh, he's an ugly-looking bastard, too. You ready? He's absolutely hideous. So Mimsy Farmer is, she's like, so she's a pathologist, but she's yeah. actually studying. Well, she's, she's doing, doing her PhD. Yeah, she's doing this thesis on, it's like fake suicides versus real suicides. So yeah, she's working in this morgue. So basically she's doing this thesis, which once you learn about that, it sort of makes sense for why you see this <laughs> the wonderful suicide montage in the beginning. But a young girl who is supposed to have committed suicide comes in and 
Simona pretty much, and Simona is uh, Mimsy Farmer's character in case we didn't say, Simona figures out pretty early on that the girl was murdered and the suicide is staged and wasn't real. And, and she's, she's also quite affected by her work. It's like the perfume lady in black. She's a very sort of neurotic character, which makes it even better. Within the sort of... So we see the suicide montage and we're introduced to the people that work in the morgue, including Simona. And she's having these strange hallucinations. Like she sees this black man get up off the slab and make lewd suggestions and she sees the corpses like making out and it's really horrible yeah it's disturbing so from like you know straight away you you think she's overworked and a bit of becoming affected by this study that she's doing even in her apartment she's got all these like fucking photos on her coffee table of like decomposed corpses and people that have been murdered yeah just it's, sort of on the on the coffee table it, it's like, like her it's her entire life she's also got this asshole boyfriend who's oh, played God. by ray levelock i love ray levelock but he's such a shit in this ricardo he is and it's it's funny if you watch perfume and this back to back there are a lot of weird overlaps and i feel like my brain sometimes like bleeds them together because it's like the same thing where it's like this lady who's obsessed with her work and she has this fucking asshole boyfriend and she's losing her shit. Yeah. And he's not helping. I mean, he comes in that, that, you know, within the sort of first 10 minutes and she's just had this awful hallucination about the zombies in the morgue. And then they say, we've got another body for you. And it's Ray Levelock pretending to be dead. And she's just like loses her shit. And it's like, you just think, what a tosser, basically. (laughs) But he is good in it. He is really good, but he's not not a very nice character. No. Whereas, you know, in a lot of genre film, he sort of played the hero type or the nice guy type. In this, he's not, which is good. There is definite overlap. And I think we also didn't mention, one of my favorite things about the film is... Unlike a lot of Jalo movies that have so many nighttime scenes, this is primarily set during the daytime where the sun is just like punishingly beating down. Well, and... wasn't an alternate title for this called Sunspots or something? Yes, because I think Machia Solari is the Italian title and the plot sort of revolves around this idea that maybe the recent waves of wave of suicides have to do with like solar flares or some sort of weird like sunspot issue and it's it's driving everyone bonkers and you get this like really oppressive sense of like it's just really hot and everyone's miserable which it's it's been like that here all summer yeah it's really, really well done. And they use this... Uh, Ray Levelock, is, he's like a photographer. Um, yeah, and, and one another one of my favorite things is... So we, we mentioned this sort of earlier in terms of Quiet Place in the Country, but this idea of like pornography being incorporated into the plot, it's he has all of these sort of... He has like a collection of pornographic pictures that 
is kind of contrasted with her collection of morgue photos in the yeah. weirdest, creepiest way. It's so effective. It's really good. He's like an heir. He He's like one of these artist types. He's got this like amazing apartment and he just goes around yeah, filming live in his buildings apartment. and, you know. And she's she's got some sort of intimacy issue apart from with her father. She's a very cold character. We discussed this before Mimsy Farmer was very good at playing that sort of cold sort of character but she does seem to have this sort of very strange relationship with her father that's like where they kiss on the mouth and we talked it's about so this gross. with Mansion in the Doom where Sam said that she just, uh, <laughs> she just hates sort of adult related adults kissing on mouths and which is they're... weird because I love movies that have sort of weird inappropriate incest themes but whenever it's like a oh, happy father-daughter or happy mother-son or even mother-daughter relationship where they're like, oh, see you later. We're going to kiss full on on the lips. I'm like, no, can we not do that? <laughs> yeah, it's not really a happy father-daughter, though. It's something no. not quite right about it. There's just, it's something quite off. And, you know, and the dad's a bit of a playboy as well. Yeah, and he um, has that weird girlfriend. Yeah, he has a weird girlfriend. He, he says to her as well, he even says to Simona, you know, because she's so uptight and obviously got these intimacy issues and she nags him a bit. It's a good good thing you have no time for men. <laughs> it's, so, yeah, it's just it's kind of like, rude. Between her dad and her boyfriend, like, she can't get a break. No, so so that's going on. She, like, like Sam said earlier, she figures out that this girl hasn't actually committed suicide. Um she meets she's she meets the girl just before she turns up dead and puts two and two together um when the girl comes in because the girl gets like her face blown off yeah. and she comes into the morgue with her eye hanging out and her teeth are all like burnt and it's like quite graphic they restore her face which is quite amazing, really. Seeing as Dr. Cheney in Mansion from the Doom couldn't replace the living eye without putting all this scar tissue in. But the but the morgue attendants at Simona's morgue can actually restore someone's face that's Which been blasted off. Which is not off. a real thing. <laughs> so that they can recognise her. Which is just bonkers. Like, she looks, like, perfect again. And it turns out that her brother was a priest. This is like the most, the most amazing thing. So her brother is a priest and he comes in and says, she didn't kill herself. She just, I gave her absolution. She confessed to me. Um, but Ray Lovelock then recognizes the priest as a former racing car driver who killed loads of people in America. You know, you've got a swell house. It's a real millionaire's place. What were you expecting? A garret? Yeah. My favorite pastimes. Photography and this. Car racing. Wait a minute. Lennox. He was a racing driver. One of the tops. Indianapolis. Mexico. Le Mans. He went off the track at Le Mans and killed about a dozen people. Some kind of record. Look. That's the accident. And that's Paul Lennox. Think it's the same guy? I don't know. I don't think so. This man's a priest. After the accident, Paul Lennox stopped racing, went into some kind of nut house. 
It's a short step from the straitjacket to the dog collar. <laughs> but it's been said that no one is closer to God than a loony. It's almost like they they wrote down Jalo highlights on index <laughs> cards and threw them into a hat and picked out which ones they wanted to use, although it's like we just talked about Lindsay, but I, I feel like Lindsay has this thing with like sinister race car drivers that <laughs> also shows up here. It's like, why? We just sort of think, oh, he's a racing car driver, gotta be the murderer. Because he's sinister priest asked to be the murderer. Yeah. Father Paul Lennox is Barry Primus paid him, and he's like. I don't know, his sister's just died and he just doesn't seem to be affected by it whatsoever. He sort of comes in and announces what I gave her absolution. You assume that she's just some woman in his congregation. It was his sister. Yeah, and it, he takes, it takes you a bothered. while to figure that out, I think. Yeah, so she, so Minzy Farmer, Simona actually gets sort of embroiled in with this priest trying to solve the mystery. Which is quite good because he they um he sort of gets a hard on for Mimsy Farmer then, but he says I'll never yes. give up my vows, but I love you. <laughs> yeah, like... there's a lot of melodrama going on where you're just like, will you guys please have sex? Yeah, because they do that thing where they hang out for an afternoon trying to solve a murder, and then they just suddenly fall in love. And Ray Levelock's just like, well, he's a shit anyway. Yeah, I think yeah. he's he's. He's underused. He obviously comes in at the climax, but I I would have liked to have seen more of him just because I love Ray Lovelock. Agreed. And Barry Primus is no Ray Lovelock. No, and and it kind of... I don't want to say it ruins it a little bit, but it makes it a little annoying in the second half because you just want him to go away and you want Ray Lovelock to come back. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, where's Ray gone? Um... Yeah, he doesn't really work as a priest either, I don't think. No, it's so unbelievable, which is why I expected them to have sex right away, rather than for him to cry about it. Yeah, it does get a bit... Mind, she cries about sex as well, because she goes, poor old Ray, who is a bit mental. He is a bit mental, and that comes out at the end. But you can see why, because she goes to his apartment, she, like, strips off, lies on the bed, and as soon as he gets on top of her, she just screams at him hysterically. Yeah, it's... To get off. (laughs) It's upsetting. (laughs) But, you know, she doesn't mind her dad touching her, so... Ah! (laughs) (laughs) On the lips. So they're getting closer to the truth and so other people start to get bumped off in usual Jallo style. And the dad, so Playboy dad gets like thrown off a building. And this is my favourite part of the film. They they save him, he's in a coma, but they, they wake him up and they remember suddenly that there's this experimental machine that you can plug into someone's head and it can like tell you their thoughts in text. So they strap the father up to this machine and ask him ask to ask him if he committed suicide and it's just it's quite ludicrous. We're ready, Inspector. Thank you. I'll ask the questions. Did you attempt suicide? Ah, 
could be yes. Just a moment. He's going on. Stop the machine. Lights. It's insane. Um, the, the second half of the movie, like, as much as I love this film, and <laughs> the first time I saw it, I was so creeped out by it. The second half, it just totally did falls apart and becomes ridiculous. So saying, did you attempt suicide? And he's like thinking these letters. It's almost like a real life Ouija board coming up and they're all stood around. Like everyone, even Ray Lovelock's there, the priest, like just a whole audience. And um, halfway through, he sort of gets a bit stressed. So they give him a sedative, but it's the wrong injection. So he just starts like frothing at the mouth and they're like, we've given him the wrong injection. Get him to the reanimation unit. <laughs> Now, I'm not a medical person, but, you know, I've been in hospital. You know, I've never... never I work in a hospital. There's no reanimation unit. (laughs) Is this a thing? In In case anyone's confused, that's not real. (laughs) So, it it turns out it's Ray Lovelock. Of course. Who's who's the killer. And he's a bit nutty. And I... the ending to this, or the sort of before the ending, sort of reminded me of the scene in Pieces at the end. <laughs> so what he does is he gives them a drink. So he gets the priest and he gets Mimsy Farmer around. He gives them this drink that paralyzes them. And then he's going to gas them. That's how he's going to kill them. Which fact, also, oh, so that's the well, yeah. thing we've had in this series. And it's, it's funny because when we talked about In the Folds of the Flesh, I was like, this is the only movie where someone is gassed to death. But it's not true. But it should <laughs> be true because it's like, why is that? Why is that your mode of killing people? Like, it doesn't make any sense. And the fact that we pick these films that says a lot about us. Oh, it. it I mean, I feel like. Anyone who's listened to multiple of our episodes, if they don't have a sense that we're probably a little disturbed at this point, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Mine, <laughs> <laughs> hmm. you did. You picked Autopsy and you picked um, In the Folds of the Flesh. And I love them both and I stand <laughs> by those decisions. <laughs> so, speaking of very neurotic and unreliable female protagonists. Our next film is one of my absolute favorites and is yet another one that I don't think has gotten enough attention. It's Luigi Bazzoni's Footprints on the Moon from I feel like we're going to have a little bit of trouble describing the plot, but it's absolutely it's amazing. It's so fucking surreal, though. When we talked in the last episode about Batsoni's The Fifth Chord and how that was a film that was very difficult to summarize because it was a very visual film, 
Footprints is also a very visual film and it looks beautiful, but it's got an extra level that I think The Fifth Chord didn't have. No, I think this is the superior film. Yeah, because when we talked about The Fifth Chord, we talked about how Franco Nero in that is just a bit of an alcoholic and a bit of an asshole. As a character, you know, he's... In the Franco Nero way. (laughs) Yeah, he's not really... hasn't really got much depth. Whereas the main character here is played by the absolutely magnificent Florinda Balkan. She, she is plays, a goddess. She is, and she plays Alice Sespi, who's this very neurotic woman whose life is unraveling. And and the reason it becomes so beguiling and so, even though it doesn't seem to make much sense, is her. It's all her. Her performance is absolutely fucking brilliant. She plays a similar role in a lizard in a woman's skin where she's trying she to does. she's got memory loss and she's trying she's haunted by dreams there and she's trying to sort of patch fill in the sort of gaps and stuff and the way that she plays that is very neurotic but here it's just on another level I love her in this film Me too I this is Lizard in a Woman's Skin is one of my favorite films but I don't know which of her performances I like more. I might like them equally. Yeah, they're both really good performances. I think here she's a she's a slightly more sympathetic character than in, in less she, cold. Yeah, she's quite cold in Lizard, whereas here she's quite fragile in in an endearing way. But it's a it's a difficult film. Again, another one of those Jallo mysteries that hasn't really got murders in it it's it's not got a killer it's just basically this woman trying to she she wakes up one day she goes into work she's a transcriber like a translator she works for translating sort of these scientific speeches which taps into what sam was saying earlier about these films having a sort of science some of them having a mad science sort of level and she goes into work to bring in her report and finds finds out that she's actually three days late and she went to bed and doesn't remember what's happened in those three days. And it's it's quite unsettling from the sort of get-go because it's like it doesn't give a lot away. It really, no. really is, is a slow burn to like what what is going on with this strange woman. Do you know when this was supposed to have been turned in? At noon. But not today. Do you know Miss Leblanche? By Leblanche? She had to take your place suddenly at the last session. You interrupted your translation and left without telling anyone. That's not possible. I was here yesterday. Yesterday? The last session of the conference on astronautics, Miss Chesby, was held on Monday. So we are speaking of three days ago, not yesterday. Mrs. Weissman went into your booth and you were not there. That's impossible. I worked at that session. Who spoke? Madame Verdier. Her speech is not in your folder, however. What's more, you never even picked up the tapes. Professor Yannack spoke the day before. On Monday, we looked for you in the coffee shop, and Mrs. Weissman and I called your house. You were not there. Yesterday, we called too, and went on calling until after midnight. And there was no answer. I really feel like 
one of, and I know we talked about this last episode briefly, but one of his earlier films, The Possessed, almost feels like a, like a dry run for this because there are a lot of similar themes, like the whole like lakeside resort setting and, and this is yet another one that's not in an urban environment, but it is more like a, it's like sort of a rural, like not in the middle of the countryside, but it's, it's set like in a, a small village. It's like a seaside town, isn't it? Like yeah. a little seaside village. It like looks a resort out of season. Village. Yeah, and there's a few odd characters that turn up, but there's not many people there. I think as well, like with the fifth chord, the way it, it parallels to that is the main character, just like the main character in the fifth chord, is very disconnected from people. She doesn't seem to have... She has friends, but they seem more like acquaintances and she doesn't have any family. And so she's sort of a bit disconnected and you get a feeling of loneliness from that. And I think... It's a really lonely film. It is a really, really lonely film. And it parallels the fifth chord in that respect because all the people in that are sort of acquaintances that hang out, but nobody's really very close. So lots of people out of touch. So, yeah, I don't know if that was a statement on behalf of the director, but... Well, The Possessed is the same way. It's In that film, it's this guy who goes to this sort of lakeside town looking for this woman, and you get the sense that he's a little bit obsessed with her, he's in love with her, but he also doesn't really know her. And that's kind of how Alice, Florinda Balkin's character is with everyone in the town she goes to it's she just she doesn't know anyone she's alone yeah she she wakes so she wakes up hands in a report and she's told that actually you were here on monday and you walked out on your job you just left the building um she finds in her apartment there's a torn up postcard in her bin of this town and she thinks she's going to get the sack anyway so she goes there to try and find out what's going on. She finds a strange dress in her wardrobe as well, which is she's got a, like we said about Mimsy Farmer, she's got quite a masculine, she's not particularly feminine anyway, Florinda Balkan, but her wardrobe's quite sort of masculine and bland. She finds this bright yellow, yeah, she finds this bright yellow frilly dress that is just totally out of sync with her character. And she lives in a minimalist sort of white apartment that's very sparse. So she travels off to this village to find out what's going on and and doesn't know anyone and it's like she turns up at this hotel and it's it's got this really unsettling atmosphere, I think. Oh, it I think that's the the best part of the film is he manages to maintain the atmosphere for pretty much the entire running time of this sort of like weird and the next film that we're gonna talk about a house with the laughing windows, I think does the same thing where it's this really alienating hostile environment where it seems like everyone is against you and you don't know why, but everyone's a bit, again, everyone's a bit sinister, aren't they? Alice turns up in this, in this town, in this hotel, she meets this guy, um, as she gets there, who offers her a lift. He's called Henry. He's played by Peter McHenry. Um, and he's very, very friendly, but you get the sense that he's, you know, probably not so friendly. Yeah. Or, or you, this is your sort of, even though it's not 
shot completely from her point of view. It's all about Florinda Bulk and what she's feeling is is reflected onto the characters, which I love because they're portrayed in the way that she sees them and she's suspicious and paranoid anyway. Um, so she goes to this hotel and she's, she's, she can't remember being there, but a few people bump into her and say that she was there the, on the following Tuesday, including this little girl. Oh, God. Who's played by Nicoletta Elmi, who we're going to talk about. We're going to do some episodes about creepy kids and Italian horror. And she's the worst. She is. She's just got that face, hasn't she? (laughs) She looks evil. And so from the very first time I saw her when I was 14 and watched Deep Red, I don't know what it is, but because I definitely I know a fair number of people who are big fans of hers, but I think it might be because she's a ginger and I also have red hair and it's like do you have to do they do we always have to seem creepy in in horror movies like like we're secretly evil because that's for Frankenstein she's the worst I know (laughs) she's the worst in every movie she's even the worst in demons she's the worst in who saw her die it's like she just is terrifying without even meaning to be yeah in this she's a bit precocious as well and she's a bit still terrible yeah she she, so she meets she meets um alice and she says well your name's not alice your name is nicole and you were here the other day and you told me this and but she's quite rude (laughs) i think doesn't help her cause no bossy even though she's like a little kid and you think for christ's sake you know so that sort of starts Alice thinking, hang on a minute, you know, and she's trying to find out why she would be calling herself Nicole, which you don't find out till the end. What do you want? Why did you say my name was Nicole? Because it is. How do you know? You said so. When? Tuesday, when we were on the North Beach. Don't you remember? Near the wall. I have to close the door now. They're coming back. Please. Tuesday. What else did I tell you on Tuesday? You were looking for a house. Don't you remember? A white house in the woods. Take a good look at me. Are you sure Nicole is me? I... I don't know anymore. Yes or no? No. Nicole had long red hair. And besides... What? You're nicer than she is. Were we alone on the beach? No, Mrs. Heim was there, the lady with the white dress, the one who's always knitting. That's them. They're coming. Go away! So it's a difficult plot because it's all atmosphere and feeling and it's not even anything that necessarily happens. I mean, the things that she does aren't really, you know, revelatory. She goes and buys a hat and somebody vaguely remembers her. She bumps into a guy who remembered her being on holiday a couple of years before and she finds out that she has this wig and she takes it to the wig maker to get it cleaned and he remembers her going there so it's all like that all the way through it's like not anything shocking or anything like oh my god you know the whole thing which sounds absolutely boring but it's not because Because of her performance. It's also got Klaus Kinski in it again. (laughs) In a very small role, but one that is hard to forget. Tell a car to activate it. 
He won't stand cosmic isolation. Process H of depersonalization of the individual has not acted on the emotional centers sufficiently in depth to complete the conditioning. We'll have to select new guinea pigs. So send out Asia right away, everywhere. Right away, Professor Blackman. And I feel um, like we haven't mentioned this part yet. No, we haven't mentioned this part yet. So um, she's much like pretty much everything else we've talked about in this episode and the last couple Art Jello episodes. It's all about a character who's haunted by past trauma. And her past trauma is that she was forced to watch this movie called Footprints on the Moon. And it it just terrorized her. And she can't stop thinking about it. And her memories of the movie are sort of intercut with what's going on in the film. And it's so creepy. It is so creepy because the the film is supposed to be about these two astronauts which were abandoned on the moon. Yeah, it's and, horrifying. And just left there as part of an experiment. And Klaus Kinski is this doctor. Uh, Professor Blackman, who's in the sort of NASA control thing, like being really erratic and very intense and very Klaus Kinski. It probably sort of took him about half a day. If that. But he's great when he shows up. And those are in black and white. Yeah, and all he he does is watch them alone, stranded on the moon, really. Yeah, looking really intense and Klaus-like. But it just makes the whole thing so much more unpleasant. It's it's almost like the way the autopsy montage, or I'm sorry, the way the suicide montage sets a tone for autopsy, the weird clips of the film within a film set the tone here, even though they there's no immediate or obvious connection between the two. Well, you don't know if it was actually a film or is this some weird science fiction thing and what's yeah. going on and... She starts to think that people are after her, like there's this, uh, her friend Henry, she's looking for him and she doesn't realise that this guy that she's picked up actually knows her from her past and she knows that Nicole was looking for this guy who's got a house in the woods and you don't know whether they're spies or whether she was like to do with some weird experiment and it's just really strange and quite unsettling because it doesn't, it even in... Even when it gets to the end, it's like, you know, there's no big reveal. (laughs) There's no, no, like, you know, closure, really. There's this amazing house in it, which is, like, really beautiful. It's Um, so, yeah, yet another example of a house that one or both of us would live in. (laughs) Oh, the whole thing is, like, I said with the Frith Court, there's a scene in that, it's like an erotic scene that looks like a magic lantern show. And it's all shot in silhouette, and that's absolutely beautiful. And I mentioned that, and there's, and that is parallels here, where you've got this house that's every single window, these huge windows are these massive stained glass windows with like peacocks and birds. And there's a similar scene in this one where it's like a silhouette, or everything's in silhouette with this like, um, stained glass window in the background. It's like beautiful, it's really beautiful shot. (laughs) Well, and of course, it's cinematography from Vittorio Storaro. And I think this film is, it has similarities with the fifth chord, but it's so much more beautiful even. It is because it uses the outside locations as well. I think it was, was it in the first episode of these, we talked about 
how a lot of Jali is sort of shot in these urban things and there are not yeah. many sort of rural films and it really uses that these sort of windswept out of season beaches with like one person sat there They're or so this lonely. hotel with like one person in the lounge or you know a town square and there's just like two people walking around it's like really really lonely and really beautiful though at the same time even though it's really beautiful it's just sort of desolate at the same time and no, cinematography is just brilliant in that regard i think the fifth chord's a really beautiful film but i I agree definitely this this one is so beautiful and i feel like and i know we just talked about him but when we were mentioning how much we love the score from the perfume of the lady in black which is by nicola piovani he did the score for this too and it's and it's another really good score it's so amazing i don't know why he's not more celebrated because the two of them, like, I could listen to them on repeat. But I don't know. I, I think, I I feel like we almost haven't done justice to it, but it's so it's weird. It's difficult. Yeah, because it's all in this performance. It's all in Florinda Balkan. She's so, you know, the the camera and everything, she's so photogenic. And she puts in such a great performance. I feel like... Not to be disrespectful to any Jallo actresses, there were some. There were some really beautiful, glamorous Jallo actresses, and some very seductive actresses at the time. Flinda Balkan was quite masculine, quite androgynous, and so she didn't really have that on her in her sort of resume. So the characters that she was given characters that were more complex, and she was given more serious roles. And she was a really talented actress. And it's the sort of film that you can't really talk about. You need to experience because it is an experience. Absolutely. And all the themes are so subtle. Like you could sort of talk about science or science fiction. You could talk about Cold War, these sort of underlying like weird espionage themes. But none of them are in your face at all. They're just all sort of lingering in the background in a really compelling, effective way, but in a way that's sort of hard to describe. Yeah, because it's all to do with how her brain is. Like, you know, she's blocked out certain memories and she's not well. She pops pills throughout the whole thing. And so you can't really trust what she's seeing or how she's seeing things. And so what you're experiencing is her psyche unraveling which is quite disturbing it is and it i don't know i just i wish she had it's not done in a showy way it's not done in the like this big show-off way or it's not done in a way like the perfume lady in black where mimsy farmer goes absolutely nuts and hacks people up with a with a meat cleaver it's not like that at all although there is a scissors stabbing scene that's quite nasty yeah that's all the violence that's in there you know it's just this very subtle very disturbing sort of it's very anxious shameless put it out here um i think a couple of years ago and a lot of people didn't know what to make of it because shameless put out some good stuff they put out a lot of Italian film, but they tend to... I mean, they have these awful fucking taglines, like um, for Torso, when whores meet sores. It's like, 
Please. Oh my god, is that really? <laughs> yeah, and and um, <laughs> they just yeah, and the whole thing is they they put out sort of Euro trash, which is great, and they got this whole gimmick with the yellow boxes and stuff. But then they put out things like that, and people were like, "What the hell is this?" <laughs> well, like... which I feel like this is another contender for an amazing Arrow box set because they could do the Possessed, the Fifth Chord, and footprints on the moon and have the release of the year basically yeah definitely so arrow if you're listening please upgrade this to blu-ray all these things that we're asking for. yes we've got a list <laughs> <laughs> the list don't forget the lensy couple of belt box sets as well exactly so our final film is another film that is the I... best film I think that we will be talking about, in my opinion. I fucking love this film, and it's just... It's scary. It's, it is scary, and it's creepy, and it's beautiful, and it and it's another film that has a bit of a gothic edge to it. And it's another film that doesn't seem to get the credit it's due. No, and another one that has that sort of weird rural setting. I think people, some people write it off as being a bit arty farty, and those people are idiots. Yes, they are. <laughs> I mean, and we tend to dismiss it. I haven't it. threatened anyone with violence in a while, so <laughs> or called anyone <laughs> stupid, but I can't imagine someone watching this movie and not liking it. It's still like no matter how I've seen it probably six or seven times at this point, maybe more, and it. I think it's scary every time. It's P.P. Avati who didn't make an incredible amount of genre films but he made Zeta which is like very atmospheric so nuts um his first couple of films are impossible to find in english translation so he seems to be like one of those directors who hasn't had his due in home video release and i don't know what that's for no. i did actually sort of watch his first film once um which oh. i haven't seen it, it, there's no English translation, and my Italian is not good. I speak Spanish quite well, so I can usually pick up maybe 10, 15% of what's being said. So it would give me like a rough idea, but anything that's like quite complex in dialogue, I'm I'm lost. Are you talking so, about Balsamas Lomo di Sicana? Yeah, Balsamas. So it's, visually, it's absolutely striking, and it's about this weird cult, and it's in a rural setting again. It seems to have these odd comedy elements in it that I couldn't really explain because I couldn't really understand much. But he did another film as well, Thomas and the Bewitched, the year later, which is also looks really beautiful. But is is another film that not even fan subbed. I'm talking about like you. There are copies of these films floating around, but they're not. They've not even had. Fan subs. So the house, the house of laughing windows, or the house with windows that laughed. It's, it's that is probably his most well known alongside Zayda. Yeah, yeah, and that did actually get a proper release. No! 
I think Shameless actually put that one out here as I well. I think yeah. Shameless put that out, but I don't think it's had a Blu-ray release. No, because Shameless do a lot of DVD or did do a lot of DVD, so it's only... I've only yeah. got it on DVD. Here uh, in the US, Image put it out on DVD as part of their Euroshock collection, but it's out of print and it really more than i know we just gave like a laundry list of things we want released but <laughs> yeah pew pivati genre box set as well please no with even the, just the... <laughs> a, a great a great blu-ray edition of house with the laughing windows would make my year it's one of those films that begs to be seen on like film as well yeah in the theater yeah because it's rural it's got this beautiful rural italian rural setting with these amazing landscapes and these amazing buildings. And so, you know, to just be watching it on DVD is a bit, you know, and it's Sad. visually very striking. So it's, it really needs a fucking upgrade. It does. And it, I mean, this has been sort of an ongoing theme of these last three episodes, but we've talked a lot about how art and artists sort of factor into Jalo films. And this, is probably the best of them all. And the murals are so creepy and disturbing that oh, they really amazing. they really should be seen in a theater. Pronto. Pronto. Ma chi parla? It's pro- I, I, I've always thought this film has got a bit of a Clive Barker vibe without the fantasy elements. Well, I, um, it must have influenced him. I mean, I know he's grew up being sort of a cult movie fan, so I'm kind of wondering if he somehow saw this. Yeah, because with the painting and the mural, and you've got this, this backstory of a painter who's sort of trying to lose himself and he's you know, just giving up and he's like getting into things that he shouldn't do. And I know it hasn't got all the fantasy elements of Clive Barker, but I've always felt that it's got like a weird little Clive Barker vibe to it. Well, it has in, the in weird sort way. of S&M themed elements that a lot of his stories do. Yeah, it's interesting connection. I wonder if he did see it because it's... The first time I ever saw it, that was uh, that just came into my mind. Just not even necessarily the Clive Barker films, but just his books. You get these odd character and you know unhinged characters like the painter in this. Yeah. So the main actual character is Stefano, who is Lino played- Capoliccio. He arrives in this village. He's greeted by the dwarf mayor. Of course he is, because (laughs) of course. As he gets off this ferry, um, he's he's greeted by the the dwarf mayor, Solmi, on the on the bay, and he we quickly find out he's played by Bob Bob Tonelli. We quickly find out that he's there, he's an expert, and he's going to the church and he's gonna restore this quite hideous and disturbing mural it's horrifying (laughs) so it's like really really sort of decadent this this mural not like anything that would have been painted in in an ancient time or anything that you normally see in a church it's like saint so it's supposed to be saint sebastian but it's it's not 
the Derek Jarman St. Sebastian. It's this like weird, gory S&M St. Sebastian who's looks like he's being tortured to death. And by these two hideous women. Yeah. And looks like he's enjoying it. Yeah. It's got this really grotesque, like, faces writhing in agony and daggers and blood and all this stuff going on. And the on. color scheme is just sort of nauseating. I don't know why. It's, it's like, almost pastel, but it just, it, like, it's kind of sickening. Yeah, I think it's done on purpose, though, because it's mm-hmm. got this dirty sort of edge from the outset. And he hears this sort of whisper, somebody whisper to get away from the painting. So it it taps into those things like these sort of things like the Wicker Man and stuff, where you feel like the whole town are in on it. Yeah. And he's just arrived by boat and doesn't he's just like a lamb to the slaughter. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And, you know, even though the mayor's sort of asked him to go there and is quite friendly, the rest of the mo- locals aren't that friendly. So No, they're all creepy as fuck. And everyone there's really fucking weird. <laughs> it's like... um, So he, he's got a friend there, though. His friend... He bumps into his friend, who's Antonio. Um, he sort of warns him and says, you know, everyone's fucked up in this place and you should go but it's a horror film so he can't go he has to ignore all that um so he sets about restoring this painting and you know it's not going to end well i love the pacing on it though no the pacing is fantastic because every little piece of this picture that he unearths and earths another key into the mystery and it's it's paced that way as he's unraveling this painting well and i i don't think we mentioned but so the painting is a mural in a church and it was painted by this local legend whose name is bruno legnani and he's this figure that's sort of reviled and sort of adored at the same time and it's assumed that he's dead but all they know is that he disappeared and there are some very unpleasant rumors. So it's like he's been gone for 10 or 20 years and that's why they want the painting restored because it's an important local landmark. And he, yeah, he lived with his two sisters as well. He was supposed to be a bit crazy. Yes. He had a strange relationship with his sisters and his job... The way he made a living was he painted people on their deathbeds. Surprise! Yeah. (laughs) You know, so he and his sisters worked in the hospital and he hated himself as well. I think he was a virgin and he was quite disgusting to look at. Yes, and And his, like, he's known as the painter of the agonies. Yeah. So he did a self-portrait of himself with a pair of women's breasts, which is really fucking disturbing. It's horrific. <laughs> it's a hideous... Do we know who did those paintings, actually did those paintings? Because they're amazing. I actually don't. Yeah, they they are really, really just I wasn't, so decadent. I wasn't able to find top. that anywhere. Yeah, I looked into it and there was just nothing. I think it's a shame because a lot of these these um 
Euro films where they have artwork. A lot of the time, they were actually painted by actual people, but they they don't get any credit. And it's almost like I wonder who did those paintings because they were like they're just like disturbing. I wouldn't want one in my house. Well, I feel like this is a uh, something that Arrow should be on the case for when they do their Blu-ray release. <laughs> yeah, we want a full full like poster no we we want a documentary about who the hell this painter is (laughs) (laughs) at least a featurette come on so the poor this poor guy he's there you know he's like a you know he's like a sort of lamb to the slaughter and and surrounded so he's surrounded by these so he's got his paranoid friend and there's the mayor who seems quite nice there's this guy who works in the church he's a fucking freak He's like the church helper. He's just looks like a pervert. He just looks like there's something completely wrong with him. And he's usually in the church while this works go while Stefano's sort of doing his work and he's just got this like really disgusting look about him. He does. He's just like he looks depraved. Lydio. He um so that he's got these people around him. He then there's the village, village sort of slutty teacher, who <laughs> he sleeps with after meeting Francesca. her ten minutes later. Francesca, she she's and then there's like this sinister priest as well. So like everyone in it is like a bit grotesque. And, and the a lady bit... who walks around with a veil. Yeah, it's a lady who walks around the veil delivering flowers everywhere. And there's another lady who's bedridden. Um, and he's staying at a hotel, but he gets back to his hotel one day and they're like, no, sorry, we've given your room to someone else. So you've got to move in with this weird old lady. So he moves into this creepy house. And when he's in the house, that's when things that start house. to get really, the house is just amazing. But he starts hearing this like tape recording of this artist ranting. Which and I, I feel like we, we mentioned this in the last episode because it, features into the fifth chord where there's a killer recording themselves but this is like a whole new level of creepiness and i don't know if there's an english dub so i don't know if we'll be able to include a clip but the kind of shit that he says in the recording is it was horrible it's talked about human sac- sacrifice and communion with the dead and ritualistic painting it's like really morbid but it's like he's like ranting like a crazy preacher Well, one of the things he says is, My colors run hot in my veins. They transcend me into darkness. They erase everything else. My colors will paint death clearly. And he goes on like that for just minutes. And it it's so... It might sound cheesy, me saying it, but it's so fucking creepy. It's horrible. So we find out that the sisters and the brother 
um, they'd gone off to Brazil and came back not quite right because it's not really... I wish they'd explored this line slightly more, but they it's insinuated that they in Brazil they got into the, some occult or mysticism um, and the painter was on some sort of quest for self-destruction, which yes. is why I thought of the Clive Barker sort of thing. And so they'd got into certain, and 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 he, um, Stefano's told they came back with this beastly, savage religion. We don't know what that is exactly, though. But they came back a bit mental. Um, and the pet, and the and the sad sort of part of the story is that the painter then set himself on fire in this self-sacrifice because he well, went so mad. And he also tortures people and then uses them as models. Yeah, because they and and paints people in pain or on their deathbed. But there's also this really weird, and again, something we talked about in earlier episodes. There's like a weird sort of post World War Two theme where it's just nothing has been quite right in this village since. And I assume the reason that they they go to South America is because they're escaping some sort of like fascist legacy. But it- yeah, it's not really explained, and it's a shame because I wish, you know, it's good. It adds, in a way, adds to the sort of mystery, and it makes yeah. it a bit more creepier. But it it would have been nice to know more about why they went and what this religion was because they don't really explore that in in any meaningful way it's just almost just dropped in as an aside in a in a yeah. conversation so you know that they were up to no good in the house um stefano sort of gets more and more paranoid and more and more scared and more and more obsessed with this tale of this painter as he finds out more well, because the house it. he lives in is fucking creepy as shit. Well, there's well, obviously because of the title, um, the House of Laughing Windows. There's this just really striking shot of this house with these fucking hideous mouths painted on it. They're terrifying. Everything in this <laughs> movie is terrifying. I saw that really like just disturbed me, no end, because it's like they're not happy mouths. No, they're, they're laughing, but they're, they're laughing. not happy. But they want to murder you. <laughs> you don't want to be in that house. And you get I mean, the sense that the whole time that he's forced... So after he's forced out of the hotel and goes to this house, you get the sense that somebody is either watching him or is listening to him and might even be recording the things that he says. Yeah. And it's so effective. So he's got his girlfriend in tow by then, Francesca. And he's also staying at the house and she doesn't like it. She wants to go. She wants to leave. And he's just so intent in finding out what's going on. People are turning up dead. And he wants to know that he promises he's going to leave. His friend dies. He was warning him. And this drunk, the local drunk, he finally blabs and says that the sisters are still alive. Um he turns up dead and so he can't let it go and in it's quite awful the sort of ending because it's got this hideously rendered sort of first of all his girlfriend turns up dead and she's obviously been tortured yeah and we talked about this when we talked about delirium in the last episode 
it's recorded her begging and um you know they they actually record her and they make a recording they lure him back to the house she he thinks he's talking to his girlfriend she's like please come and help me so they've recorded her which just makes it even more evil it's so fucking creepy (laughs) it's really horrible Non è che ci sei spaventata. Lo faccio anche in parrocchia ai bambini, ma loro mica si spaventano. Ridono invece. Non mi dire che hai paura di me. Nessuno ha paura di Lidio. Ti piace lui, eh? Ma io so tante cose che lui non sa. So tante cose che lui vorrebbe sapere e che anche tu non sai. Puttana. Dai, fai la puttana che come dai. 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 Vuoi sapere chi è la vecchia di piano di sopra, eh? Dai, dai, dai! I like the scene just prior to that where they're waiting because she's he's found the body but then it disappears and they're um sort of waiting with the mayor and they're sat in this hotel lounge and it's all red and it looks like a scene from Twin Peaks because the dwarf mare is there. It's just this whole really red does. room. It does look like a scene from Twin Peaks, doesn't it? You expect the dwarf to start up dancing backwards. It's That fits really sort of off and odd. The whole thing is, he yeah. rushes to the house and finds the creepy depraved man being, like, tortured by these sisters who aren't dead. They're just alive and completely fucking insane. Totally batshit. <clears throat> They've got the artist in the cupboard like Tony in Paranoiac. <laughs> <laughs> and and he's kept in like embalming fluid, but he's like all decayed. And you just think, why do you bother changing the fluid every day? Because he's all like just leathered and disgusting. And so their idea is that they had to keep him in life clearly he's not alive but to keep him alive they have to bring him new people to inspire him so they recreate this fucking mural with people um i love the idea though that they're old ladies they're like quite old as well but yeah they're, they're i love that it's really sort of transgressive and just goes against well everything in this film is so unusual and like we've mentioned it kind of it takes some giallo tropes, but uses all of them in such a different way. Yeah, because nothing is as you would expect it. At all. No. So we're going to give the actual end in a way. <laughs> yes. We should. I don't know. Should we? Ooh, no, actually. I don't think we should. You know, when we first started out talking about movies like Deadly Sweet, where... It's probably 50% plot and 50% visuals, but the visuals don't really impact the plot here. it Everything has to do with these paintings and this painter and this art historian who's come to restore them. And I, I feel like it just, it's so nasty and so grim in the most perfect way that, I don't know, I don't know that you could find a better art jello film. No, I think of all the films as well, it epitomizes what we started out to do with these episodes. Because, you know, we wanted to find films that in particular used a lot of visual elements and 
you know, they've been difficult to describe some of these films because the plots are yeah. so out there or don't make any sense. And I think this film of all of them sort of epitomizes that sentiment of this very strong visual dreamlike state being part of that narrative or being the narrative. Um, and so that's why we wanted to showcase these films because they form, you know, even at their trashiest, they break that divide between sort of film and art. And that's what we wanted to explore with this series of episodes films that don't you know they can be classed as jarrow and they are mystery films but part of that mystery is just a it's like a visual journey it's not anything that you can make sense out of and because of that they're films that don't tend to get celebrated as they should do because they're hard to define no, and, and so people don't perhaps talk about them as much as they should do because, yeah, because there's not, not a language it's hard to find the language isn't it yeah, and they're not something that can be boiled down to a plot synopsis. They're so much more complicated than that. And they're films that you experience. Often horrifyingly what... so. Yeah. <laughs> just don't ever show me that painter with the tits again. That's just hideous. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, thank you for listening to this episode of Daughters of Darkness, and please tune back in three weeks for the last part of our look at Art Jello films. On that note, I'd like to give a shout out to Nucleus Film's Indiegogo page, which is a restoration project for Death Laid an Egg and Lady Frankenstein. Obviously, we covered the absolutely fucking amazing Death Laid an Egg last episode, but this is a really exciting project that's beyond worthy of your support. Uh, it seems like they've made their goal, but they could always use more, and more funding just means a better release, better special features, so on and so forth. The URL is a little cumbersome, but we will share it on the page for this episode, which you can find over at Diabolique, or you can just search for Indiegogo Nucleus Films Euro Cult Cinema Restoration Project. And Kat, is there anything you wanted to mention? Just one thing to shout out today, um, just to let everyone know that I contributed to the fanzine Fang of Joy for their all Fulci issue, which has like loads of Fulci stuff. It's just Fulci, 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 pages of Fulci. And it comes with a free Bob sticker, so check that out. Once again, thank you for listening, and please let us know what you think over at Facebook or iTunes. Mm-hmm.